Well, I was trying to figure out, um, I think it's been a, a year and two months since the last time I preached. Um, this past year has been quite crazy in some ways in, in our family's life, and uh, I'm thankful to be back here and be able to, to preach this afternoon. Um, it's been a little bit of a, a unique service today, and so it's been quieter, so you might get a little sleepy. I'm going to try to be quick, and hopefully you'll be interested in, in the word that is being preached today. Um, but I want us to look at today from Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's no wonder that there have been volumes upon volumes of, of books written about the Sermon on the Mount. It is a very practical uh, sermon that Jesus preached uh, in, in Matthew 5. And it takes up three chapters, and you're probably all very familiar with it, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And there's an abbreviated uh, version in Luke, and it's only just a few verses in Luke. But today we're going to look at the, the introduction to this sermon. And actually we're only going to look at part of that. We're not going to preach through all the Beatitudes, so don't, don't get worried. Uh, we're going to just do a, a, about three of them today. And the, in, in, this, in this section, the, the Beatitudes, this is the sum of, of the whole Christian walk and the whole Christian life is found in these short nine verses. And it is a, a test for the Christian who is seeking assurance. It is a uh, promise to the Christian seeking hope. It is the true reality of God. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that it is, as the, it is a Christian as he is. And it is preached by none other than Christ himself. So we know that it's a good sermon. It was preached by, by our Lord. Uh, the theme of, of Matthew as a whole is on the kingdom of God. So as we get into this passage, this also fits in with that. That it, it explains how the members of the kingdom, those who are saved, those who are believers, how they conduct themselves, what they pursue, how they should expect to be treated, um, and the promises which are guaranteed to them as believers. And the, the Beatitudes, as we read through them, You've, you've probably heard sermons after sermon on, on this passage, but it is absolutely imperative that we remind ourselves of this truth, of, of the, the thoughts that are found in this, because the, the culture or the lifestyle that this passage presents to us is completely in contrast from the culture that the world presents to us. And we are being bombarded on that all day long, every day, 24-7, and this passage presents something that's completely different. So we need to be reminded so that we know how to buttress our faith against what we hear all day long. And this goes in, in, in contrast to the culture of the day. The Pharisees were the religious elite and they were presenting this works-based salvation. Well, this passage goes against that. It goes against our culture that, that, that has this entitlement idea. An idea that, well, I just deserve it because, just because. Or the, the right to choose an idea. Or the, the other attitudes that we have that characterize uh, humanity's self-centeredness or our, our self-arrogating pride that wells up inside of us, meaning we just deserve this. And the Pharisees were guilty of this self-centered, prideful religion. And, and Jesus was preaching to dismantle that structure that that whole system of faith and we in the church today uh, we need to be careful that we allow 
uh, who we allow to speak into our life to make sure that what they are saying goes according to what the Word of God says. Pastor Nathan has been preaching the past few weeks on, on false conversions and false teachers. And Jesus here is speaking about the, the, the true uh, Christian, the one who knows that they are a believer because these things are true of them. And today I, I even want to mention a, a false system of teaching that, that is around us all the time. And the church has, has embraced it as a whole. And I think it's a, a, a big concern. And so I, I kind of want to piggyback off what Nathan's been preaching, even though it wasn't intended to me jump into his series. <laughs> but we're, we're hearing today from the true teacher, and I want to contrast that with a false teaching. Jesus' message is the true message that we must evaluate all other messages in light of. And the church over the past few decades has been brought into this idea that we need modern therapy or psychologies in an effort to, to feel better, to live better, and to find help in life's difficulties. However, Jesus' message is based in a totally different system because the foundation of Jesus' message focuses on a true view of man. But these therapies, these modern uh, teachings that, that we are tempted to buy into, look at, at a false view of man. And so today we want to see how Jesus presents this, this whole other idea and compare it to what we've heard. And I believe that if you, if you hear from this passage and you start to examine the things that you hear from the secular world of therapy, you, you'll be able to, to, to see it pretty quick that they, are, they come from different foundations of structure. And Jesus here in this sermon is more concerned about our heart than he is about our happiness in our current situation. And I want us to hear that again and think about it. That Jesus is more concerned about our heart than he is about our happiness in our current situation. And the definition that I use for happiness there is not the definition that the Beatitudes use. It's the, the, the idea that the world gives us and it fluctuates, it moves and it changes constantly. Jesus does care about our emotions and how we feel. But he's not so worried about that as he is creating himself in you through those situations. Uh, if, we, if we look at our happiness in the light of our current situation, it will fluctuate and change more than the weather in, in Memphis has over the past week. It, it changes and it moves based on every situation, everything somebody says to us, every difficulty we face. But Jesus focuses on our heart because he knows that if our heart is turned toward him, that we will find true happiness, a totally different definition a blessing, a, a hope, a peace. Happiness that is, that is everlasting. And if you judge your, your, your situation based on your circumstance, sense, then you will judge shallowly. When we think about happiness, we judge our, our circumstance from our point of view. The way it looks from us. If we uh, judge or think about blessing... We judge from God's point of view on us. So it's a different view. Happiness is fickle and it fluctuates just like a candle as you blow on it and the flame moves. But blessing is firm and enduring. And what God says is true won't be undone. 
Luther called this, uh, this Sermon on the Mount, this is a hard word to say, Mosissimus Moses. That's a weird word to, to think about. But he calls it, the, it's Moses quadrupled. It is the law of God to the highest degree because it is a law of inward righteousness which no child of Adam can possibly obey. That sounds like Mount Everest. Like there's no way we can climb that. And so it, it only condemns us and makes the forgiveness of Christ indispensable. As Jesus preaches through the whole Sermon on the Mount, he takes the, the, the law that the Pharisees had taught and said, you've heard that it was said, yada, yada, yada. He says, but I say, and so he takes the, the law and he presents it that it, it affects the heart. It's not just this law to obey and check off. It's not a, a matter of perfection. It's a matter of the heart. And so it is, it is this law that even Jesus elevates and makes it absolutely impossible for you to, to attain to. Which means his grace and his mercy is absolutely important. And so our, my prayer today is that as we, as we hear from this, this passage, we will see where, where true change begins. It begins in the heart. And the true source of help and hope can be found in, in that change. And to run from the false teaching of modern therapy. And it says in this passage as we look at Matthew 5. It says, seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them saying. In, in Luke it says he came down to a, a level place. And, and in Matthew it says he goes up on the mountain. And both of those are, are likely true, that he went up on the mountain and then came down to a flat place where he could speak and everybody could hear him. And the audience that is very important for us to see is that it was his disciples. It was those that had committed their life to him already. So he's preaching to believers. So he's, it's a direct correlation for us. He's preaching to us. He's telling us to be reminded of what a true believer looks like. Be encouraged. Be uh, excited about this. This is, this is about us. And it begins with, with eight characteristics or qualities combined with eight blessings. And the first, the first point today is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You hear the word blessing and you think of a, like a gift or like a, something you're excited about. And then he says poor in spirit. Well, that's not something I'm, I'm happy about. And being poor here is not involving our money. It's not like pulling out our wallet and checking to see if we have any bills in there. It, it, this is not a, a socioeconomic poverty. He is speaking of, of spiritual poorness. It's true that, that no amount of money, you can't buy your way into heaven. You can't just have enough money and then get there. But Jesus is, is actually pointing to the condition of our heart. He's telling them that the poor, the beggarly, the humble, the destitute of spirit are the ones who are blessed. He tells them the, the one who would be blessed must understand man's greatest problem. And that problem is that you are spiritually destitute. You are spiritually bankrupt. Not just poor, but you are a beggar. You are completely dependent on someone else for your, your assistance or sustenance. Absolute no means of self-support. And ultimately, it's, it's total spiritual destitution and complete dependence upon a holy God. 
Isaiah 66, 2 tells us that this is the person who, who God looks upon. He says, it is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. Like Isaiah said in his, or in his vision of the Lord, after seeing the Lord on his throne, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we recognize that we spiritually come with nothing, we are coming with humility of heart. And we are to examine ourselves according to this word. Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It lies to you and me. It says it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You and I, we think that we know what our heart's like. But we are blind to our own sin. In verse 10 of Jeremiah 17, it says, But I, the Lord, search the heart to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, this is in direct contrast to the Pharisees. They thought they were able to, to bring something. They thought they could achieve something. And Jesus tells them, you have nothing You have to come humbly submitted to me because I'm the one that does it for you. And today in in our world, in our situation, there there are certain schools of psychology that teach this very erroneous view. Jesus says man is destitute with nothing in his ability to change things. But many secular therapies are based in the teaching that man is basically good. That you have something good in you and we just have to find it. We have to get you in touch with your, yourself that you are separated from. That, or that man is completely autonomous and he needs no help from God. Because many secular therapies are founded in a belief that Freud had that he was completely atheistic. He said God is, is non-existent. You don't need him because he's not there. Or that man needs a professional help. To, uh, in using psychoanalysis or psychotherapy as a means to change. And so the modern therapy of the world that we hear all the time says that, that you have it in you, you just got to find it. Or, or come to me and I'll, I'll help you find it. But the Lord says the greatest way to be blessed is to know how unable you are to do anything about it. Help comes when we trust in Christ by faith and pursue the patterns of, of putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and putting on the new self that's being made in the, in the image of Christ. If you are to be blessed, you must know that you are spiritually destitute. For we are sinners under the holy wrath of God, deserving nothing but the judgment of God. We have nothing to offer, nothing to plead, ultimately nothing with which to buy the favor of heaven. There's a hymn that we sing here that I, oops, I lost it. I don't have it on there. We sing this hymn, Rock of Ages, and we will sing it again at the end. Uh, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, awful, stench. Foul I I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. When we are humbled to the truth of our spiritual condition, we are able to find help in the only one who can bring life 
and righteousness to our spirit. And God has offered that grace through Jesus applied by his Holy Spirit. Romans tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the Pharisees, they, they walked around proudly bearing their, their Torah and, and pleased to, to have everybody give them all the accolades in the world. But they were blind to their spiritual condition. And Jesus sought to dismantle their whole teaching, their whole way of life. It had infiltrated everything. And because it was based on this false assurance, they believed that they were approved because they were uh, able to do something to appease God. My, one of my favorite uh, theologians, Jonathan Edwards, says, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. The Pharisees thought, I could contribute everything to my salvation. I could earn my way. I could, I could check off all the boxes. I could complete all the law. And then I would create more man-made laws to show God how good I was. But Jonathan Edwards points out what the Bible points out, what Jesus says. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it absolutely necessary. You're familiar with this, this story that Jesus taught of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee walks boldly up to the very front and, and he sees the tax collector back. Man, God, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I tithe and I, I give of all that I, that I have and, and I, I uphold your law. But that guy, he takes people's money. I'm glad I'm not like him. And the, the tax collector, understanding who he was, stays far back, not even feeling like he's worthy enough to come up to the front. And he beats his chest it says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The, the Pharisee used his standard as being other men. Like, I'm glad I'm not like him. You and me, we can find somebody that we can compare ourselves to all day long. But we need to be like the tax collector. We need to compare ourselves to, to the law, to, to God himself. And we understand we are not able to match up. Our standard is sitting in your lap or on your, your phone. Our standard is right here, this Word of God. This is the standard that we compare ourselves to and we don't match up. To be poor in spirit means that you hold no standard against yourself except the Word of God. Let it examine you. Let it tell you who you really are and lead you to the only one who can do anything about it. Jesus tells us that those who do this realize their spiritual bankruptcy and are blessed, not because of what they do, but because what God does about our bankruptcy. He gives us the kingdom of heaven. And we, we earn it because he puts on our account his righteousness, not our own. He gives us the ability to love God and love others. He gives us the, the ability to, to please Him through, through following after and striving after the Word of God and doing what it says. But it's because of what He's done, not because of what we are earning. And so as we come and, and we think about this first uh, beatitude, we need to pray and ask the Lord to reveal to us our need. And even if you're a believer, even if you've already recognized that need, ask Him to remind you of that every day. Preach this to yourself. Because you and I, we can get to this place where we think, well, I, I can do it. Or I'm able to obey God today. 
You need God every day. You need His righteousness every day. Study the Bible and learn what the Bible says about your sin, about your heart, and about true blessing. Because he who is spiritually bankrupt has come to understand and know that the wages of sin is death. And your, your sin has brought death and earned death, which leads us to point number two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now this is not a, I've heard this, this spoken of before, that this is a, a, um, a type of mourning that comes with bereavement and grief. But this isn't the kind of mourning that he's speaking of. This is a sorrow of, over our sin that leads to repentance. This is the, the person who is mourning knows they are poor in spirit. And they're mourning over the fact they can do nothing about it. They understand the wages of sin is death, but they are comforted in this. That the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mourning is over the sin, but the comfort is in Christ. And as, as, you, as you hear from, like I, I am a, a, a counselor at the boys ranch and I hear boys come to me all the time that have been in secular counseling and the things that are told to them, the, the modern world, modern psychology doesn't know what to do with guilt. They don't know how to handle it. Many of those schools of psychology, and, and there are many, let, let me tell you, that are all contrary to each other. But they, they don't, a lot of them agree on this one thing, that man is not to blame. They, different ones believe that, that conflict is inside of you, in your subconscious. It's between these, these parts of your subconscious warring against each other. I don't know how to understand that. <laughs> Or it's in your environment. If you could just get out of your environment, things will get better. Or it's, it's those who are around you that have caused these problems. It was the way your parents raised you. Or something that happened in your past. It was the way the kids made fun of you in, in school when you were younger. That now you have this, this issue. But it's, it's never, maybe you, you have to start with the heart, that we're lost. And we are, we are cursed in this body of flesh. And so we're going to have suffering. We're going to have pain and problems. But you should not feel guilty because it's not your fault, is what they say. But Jesus says something contrary to that. He says we are blessed when we learn to mourn over our sin. And mourn over sin that we see displayed around us. Mourn over the way that the world is lost and dying and the way that, that we hurt each other and we, we cause pain and trial and suffering to each other. I wish I could read to you some stories of, of young men that have come through my office at the ranch. Stories that would break your heart. Those are kinds of things we mourn over. The way that they have been treated and, and, and suffered through no fault of their own. And it is true that your environments affect you. It, it is true that the people around you affect you. But it's also true that even if you're 10% of the problem, that you have to deal with your 10%. And that God says we are responsible for 100% responsible of our 10%. And so even though you may have been hurt in the past, God says, but what are you going to do about it now? Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to hold bitterness in your heart? Or, or hatred in your heart for those people? 
the, the, the modern world of therapy says it's okay. Like just, just get away from that person, but don't ever try to reconcile. Don't ever try to fix it. But God says, no, you need to mourn over that. You need to work to, to rebuild the things that are broken. God-given guilt is meant to drive us to the one who removes guilt. It is true that there is a judgment for sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And this judgment is condemnation to hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, forever separated from joy, peace, grace, mercy, always in pain, always in judgment, always condemned, crying out, and no one ever coming to help. Everyone in this room has two options. You will mourn over your sin here in this life and repent and find blessing and comfort in heaven through Christ. Or you will ignore your sin and find ways to have pseudo comfort, false comfort, and you will mourn over your sin under the wrath of God in hell forever. Those are the only two options. So, what Jesus says is, blessed are those who mourn, is blessed are those who mourn right now, who acknowledge that right now, because you will find comfort. You will find peace that comes through Christ. If you don't mourn now, you will mourn later. And the comfort that comes in our mourning over sin is the, the blessing here. It is in the substitute for our sin. Someone steps up to the judge and says, yes, he's guilty and deserving of punishment. But I will stand in his place and I will take his punishment that's coming to him. God is still just. He will condemn and punish all sin, but there's good news. God sent his son to take the punishment for sin for all who would believe in Jesus. All who put their faith in him. Think on this picture of forgiveness. From Psalm 130, it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think about that. Think about all of the iniquities, transgressions, and sins you've committed over the last 24 hours. Over the last week. Over the last months and years. I do not want him keeping a record of all of that. There's no way that I would stand in his presence with all of that on my account. But finish Psalm 130, verse 4, and it says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Robert Jones, a a biblical counselor, said, Not one of us could stand. Not one of us could stand before the living God if he counted our sins against us. But because he doesn't, and because he has already counted our sins against his son, we can stand before him now and on that final day. The reason there is comfort for those who mourn is because Jesus took the punishment for our sin, which made us poor in spirit. Everyone quotes, it seems like, very often, the Heidelberg Catechism question number one. Today, I'm going to quote number two. So if you've heard sermons before, you've heard one. Today, you're going to hear number two. The question says, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And you must know three things. Sorry, I'm not used to doing all these at once. You must know three things. 
First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. What must you know to live and die in the comfort of Matthew verse four, five, or chapter 5, verse 4? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is to know how great your sin and misery are. And to know how you are set free from all your sins and misery. Through the blood of Christ. And then how to thank God for such deliverance. He is our substitute for sin. He is the one who stood in the place of the condemned and offered up his life for theirs. There is no greater comfort than that. Another secular therapy teaches that there are no moral absolutes. There's no absolute right. There's no absolute wrong. Everything's relative. And the way that the counselor works with that person is they they come in and he gives them non-directive, non-confrontational counsel. And you're like, how does that work? He helps them find the answer within themselves, asking them, well, what, what do you think you should do this week? Or what, what, what was your problem this week? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with my relationships with people. Well, why do you think you've been struggling? Well, I think it's because people don't appreciate me for who I am. I think I'm a really gifted person, but I think people take advantage of who I am. Well, what do you think you need to do about why people are taking advantage of you? Well, I think I need to stand up more and tell people how what they are doing is hurting me. Well, what do you think they'll do if you respond that way? Well, it might hurt them. So what do you think you should do then if you've upset them? Uh, I should probably uh, learn to not be so affected by what other people think. Well, what steps do you think you could take to bring that about? Hmm, I think I could do this or I could do that. That sounds good. I think you could really do that this week. Yeah, I, th- I think I could. There's been no help given. No, no instruction from the Word what God wants that person to do. No, no impact to the heart. That's not biblical counseling. That's Rogerian counseling. This counselor, counselor is seeking to just lead the counselee to find the answers to his problems in his own thinking. And what that does is allows us to be, to be uh, approving of, of uh, sinful attitudes and sinful desires in our heart because the counselor is not ever going to contradict that. No, that, that's not what God wants you to do. Or God says that's not okay. He would never say that because he doesn't believe that there is a right or wrong. Well, whatever you feel good, you should do. If that helps you in this problem, you should do that. But that's not what Jesus says. This type of, of counseling is in great use today. And it is devoid of biblical truth. It allows man to direct his path. And it promotes himself over all others. It it removes God-given guilt by destroying the conscience. And the Lord says that we must first know that we have a bankrupt spiritual condition. And then repent and trust in the Lord. And he will forgive us and teach us how to live toward him and others in this life through his word. There is a right and wrong. And God says this is how you should do it. And you're going to fight that because your flesh is cursed. And it's going to be hard. And you're going to experience pain. And there's going to be people that are going to be rude and, and, and awful to you. And you're going to have to still stand up and say, I know that this is still right even though it's hard. That's what the, the Bible says. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. In that type of counseling there are no wicked. There are no wicked ways. There's nothing that you need to turn from. But the Lord says you need to turn from your wicked ways. And the unrighteous man needs to change his thoughts according to my thoughts. And so we see like Jesus is is a brilliant expositor, like a teacher of the word. I wonder why. And he preaches brilliantly here. And as each, 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 each beatitude leads to the next one. He says, when you understand that you're poor in spirit, then you mourn over that. And then once you're, you're mourning over that and you, you have received the comfort that only God can give, then it leads to this meekness, this humility of spirit. And that's number three. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is where, where counseling that is biblical takes off. In light of all that you've, you've deserved because of sin and all that you've been forgiven of through Christ, now you have a new perspective on life and all that goes on in your life. Because no one has done to you what you've done to a holy God. No one has done anything that bad to you. So now you see, hey, all the things that you've offended me by, they're not so, such a big deal anymore. Because everything that I've been offending a holy God on is so much greater. And he's forgiven me of all of that. The Pharisees and the religious elite, they had no meekness. They paraded their religion around, standing around boldly. Humility would have destroyed the foundation of their man-made religion. Just like the, the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee was boldly thanking God that he's not like those other guys. Those other sinners. And he thought himself far above all of them. But the tax collector who had understanding of his uh, poorness of spirit. He mourned over his sin. He beat his breast and cried out to the Lord for mercy. The, the tax collector showed meekness. You see this is being meek is often misunderstood as being weak. But that's not the case. Being meek understands all that you've been forgiven of. And it changes how you respond to other people. You're okay with other people um, saying awful things about you and you not responding in kind. Because you know that, hey, I have said much worse about God. Or I have been guilty of much worse. You can, you're willing to, to suffer rather than to inflict injury. There's no self-righteousness, no spiritual pride. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself. Expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God can think of him as well as he does. And that man can even think of him as well as they do. Because we're so worthy of much worse. Pride and vengeance and anger comes when we compare ourselves to other men. After all, you and I, we can always find somebody um, in our self-righteousness, somebody who's sinfully worse than we are, who is uh, treating other people worse than we do, and who treats us worse than we think we deserve. Meekness 
comes when we understand who we are compared to God and not compared to other men. So once again, the the scripture is what reveals to us who we are and our condition. And meekness comes when we compare ourselves to a holy God rather than comparing ourselves to other men. There were a couple of Old Testament examples um, that I thought of. Abraham and Lot in Genesis 12 and 13. Abraham had been given the, the, the promise of the covenant that he would become this great nation, that he would be blessed, and that all these things would come to him through what God was doing. But then he and his people had issues with Lot and his people, and they decided they needed to separate. But Abraham, I mean, he could have put his foot down and said, no, I I deserve the land. I'm going to choose and then you get whatever's left because I have the promise. But in meekness, he let Lot take the first of the land. And he says, you find the land you you want and I'll take the rest. Because the the important part here is that Abraham trusted him. uh, He trusted his, his self and his future to the promise of God, not to making it out on his own. And it brought meekness to his life. Or another of my favorite uh, stories from the Old Testament, Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph went through a whole lot. And when, when Joseph's father died, his brothers were afraid that, you know, what they had done to Joseph, that he would, uh, or what they had done to him by hating him and selling him into slavery, that, oh no, now Joseph's going to get revenge because our father's dead. And Joseph says to his brother, she says, am, am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And even though Joseph was the second in command over the most powerful empire on the war, in the world at that time, he had all the power to do whatever he wanted to his brothers to seek vengeance. He says, that's not my job. Am I, am I in the place of God? I am trusting myself to God and his plan." Rather than to what you did and what I can do to you. Joseph demonstrated a meekness with his brothers. Because there was, there was somebody else that was much bigger than him that was controlling all things. And Joseph trusted in that. Meekness is something that a believer has, but it's not created by you and me. It only comes through a work of the Spirit in our lives. And this is truly a work of him because you and I would never be meek on our own. Calvin said, we must believe that Christ alone is the guardian of our life. All that remains for us is to hide ourselves under the shadow of his wings. We must be sheep if we wish to be reckoned part of his flock. But Jesus was also meek in in a, a different way. Jesus wasn't meek because he knew all the things he had been forgiven of. But look at 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, he committed no sin... Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was meek because he fully submitted himself to his Father's will. He came to do his Father's will at every turn. In meekness, Jesus fully walked the path that the Father had laid out for him. And he traversed that path with meekness and humility. Because he knew the end for which, which God had sent him. He submitted himself to being falsely accused, beaten, ridiculed, whipped, and spat upon. And yet he did not return with vengeance or rail back with words. 
because he entrusted himself to his father's plan. And here in this passage, Jesus promises that to us. He promises that the meek will inherit the earth. So think about that. The meek will inherit the earth. That is the very thing that the prideful demand and fight for right now. My kingdom, my way, right now. Jesus says that those who are meek know that we're going to get that in the end. I don't have to fight for it now because God has already promised it to me. I don't have to demand my way now because God's taking care of me. He's in control of it. Modern therapies are, con- are concerned with helping you today in this life with regard to the here and now. They don't regard anything after because they're not built on anything that has a belief in anything after. So the, the help that they will give you is oftentimes something that is centered on the here and now. And that's contrary to a life that is meek. Their goal is to make your life the best life it can be right now. It's your kingdom. It's your life. It's your now. You deserve it. Go after it. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek because they know that in Christ what comes next is more valuable than anything here and now. Jesus is the best biblical counselor because his solution is not to remove you from all your problems. Rather, it is to help you live like Christ in the midst of those problems. Because the the very problems that rise up in your life are to mold you and make you in his image. They are to to chisel off those rough spots so that you come out as the the image that he wants you to be. It is the picture of the crucible that the ore goes into the oven and it's really hot. And it burns and melts it down. But all the infirmities come to the top and he scrapes it off. And then he puts it back in there and it burns it down again. And all the impurities rise to the top and he scrapes it off. But in the end, it's pure gold. In the end, it is a very valuable and precious metal. But it has to go through the crucible. You and I, we have to go through the crucible of this life. Because God is forming in you and making in you His image. And if He went to the cross and was falsely accused and beat and ridiculed and whipped and spat upon and, and, and His flesh hung to the point that He didn't even look like a human anymore... Are we any better than to also suffer for his sake? We are to expect that because God is, is making us understand that he's in control and he is, he is the one that's going to guide and direct your future. The Holy Spirit teaches us that through the words of Paul in Ephesians 4 that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. To be humble and gentle with patience and love. And that word gentle is the same word meek. It's just translated gentle. Colossians 3 says he tells us to put on as, as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. These are three identifi- identifi- identifying terms for who the believer is. The chosen one. The holy one. The beloved one. Those are things that God says are true of you in position through Christ. But he's going to make you look like that through progressive sanctification as you learn to have compassionate hearts. As you learn to be kind and humble, meek and patient. Titus 3 says, Speak evil of no one, avoid arguing, be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
To be meek is to be like Jesus. To be meek is to trust yourself to God and forgive as he has forgiven you. To be meek is to love God and others higher than yourself. We must examine ourselves according to his truth. This is our standard. This is our, our, our ruler. We don't get to decide how big the ruler is. We go with his standard. And we examine ourselves according to who Jesus is, not according to other men. Without Christ, you are destitute, bankrupt, without hope in this world. For sin has earned you the wrath of the holy God. But as it says in First Peter, or Second Peter, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you can be healed. Jesus preached so that the disciples who heard would know what true happiness is. And this is a definition on, on his terms, not ours. Because it's, it's true happiness. It's not a removal of your situation. It's a changing of who you are in that situation. It comes in knowing that when you repent of your breaking God's holy law, that there's a substitute who stood in your place. You may be forgiven because Christ took the wrath of your breaking the commands of God. The kingdom of God is yours. The comfort of God is yours in Christ. Jesus preached also so that the disciples would know that the blessed one is the one who lives in meekness. For the reward is great. The meek will inherit the earth. You don't have to fight for your little kingdom here and now. You are blessed to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he promises you will inherit the earth. But a final word of warning. The church must make sure we go to the right source for hope and help. For the struggles and situations of life. The church at large has fallen into that cultural demand for secular therapy. Over the hope and help that comes only through the word of God and belief in Christ. Second Peter tells us that the word of God is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. It doesn't say it's sufficient for all things that pertain to, you know, fixing your car engine or fixing uh, or doing brain surgery. It's not for, sufficient for everything that you must know. But it is sufficient for everything that has to do with loving God and loving other people. Everything that pertains to this life, the relationships that you and I have, and the godliness by which our lives are defined. Matthew 22 tells us that the word of God points us to how to be right with God and right with man. 2 Timothy tells us that scripture is able to make us wise unto salvation and then grow us in sanctification in life through the scriptures teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, training us in righteousness. But we must go to the word We must have other people point us to the word. We must have somebody confront us and say, hey, that's not what God says that you're supposed to be doing. Confronting us in love and confronting us to the point of of making us like Christ. But that only comes through the word. Some points of contrast, and these are, are very simplified. The world of psychiatry and scripture differ on the view of man. Psychiatry sees man as inherently good. There's something good in you and there's a spark of divinity that we need to fan into flame. You can have the answers. You just got to find them inside yourself. But scripture says you're sinful. And the way that you would handle things when the pressure comes is not the way that God tells you to. Psychiatry and scripture are contrasted on responsibility. 
Psychiatry says that you should blame shift. It's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. Scripture says that man is accountable. It differs on assertiveness. Psychiatry says you should think of yourself higher and higher. You deserve it. It's your kingdom. But Scripture says believers are to be meek and sacrificial and love others higher than ourselves. It differs on self-esteem. Psychiatry says that we deserve the best. Scripture says that it teaches us to esteem God and others better than ourselves. It differs on alienation and isolation. Psychiatry says man is alienated from his inner self. You've got to find your inner self. Scripture says man is alienated from a holy God. And finally, psychiatry and Scripture differ on the goal of therapy or counseling. Psychiatry, the goal is to, re- to remove the pain, remove the trial, remove the situation. And Scripture is concerned with you being conformed to the image of Christ, being God-pleasers in the midst of the pain, the trial, and the situation. Because God says He is going to complete the good work that He began in you. And it comes through trial and suffering and situations. And as you look at this, this list of these, these comparisons, it's very similar to the, the, the religious life that the Pharisee demonstrated. But Jesus presents a, a contrary faith. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is the true biblical counselor. He's preaching us against the Pharisaical teachings of the day. Jesus goes after the heart. The Pharisees just whitewash the dead man's tomb and make it look good on the outside. The world of secular therapy can make improvements in your life. It can. But it doesn't go after the heart. So the solution is not long-lasting. We must trust in the Word of God. And so the call today is, Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. Confess your bankruptcy. Repent of your sin. Find the comfort of the Savior who died for your salvation. And finally, if you, if you need help with things that are, are impacting your life and you're struggling, as probably every one of us in here is in some way, form, or fashion, then find one of the elders and we'll help point you to the Word of God and help, help direct you in, in biblical counseling, counseling that finds true help and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you reveal to us the true condition of our heart. That you don't play games with us. You don't lie to us and say things are better than they really are. You don't whitewash a dead man's tomb. You reveal to us the horrible news that we are wretches. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then you offer us life through your son you send your son to die on the cross after he has lived the life fulfilling the law that we broke and he takes the wrath when 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 he looks when you look for our sin you don't find it because you found it already in him and you've already condemned him and punished him in our place oh what a, a love that is oh what grace what comfort is found there 
Father, I pray for those in this room that that may have never experienced that comfort, that have never understood that peace. May they examine themselves according to the word of God, that they would see their, their poorness of spirit, their bankruptcy before you, that they have nothing to offer. And may they cling to the cross and cling to the blood of Christ and say it was Christ who died on my behalf and it is only through Christ that I can stand before a holy God. And may they find the comfort that is above all comforts of this world, the true happiness and blessedness that is found in Christ. And Lord, may may that then send us out of this place humble and meek in the world that attacks us and and fights against us every day. May we know what we've been forgiven of so that it impacts the life that we live. And we don't have to rail back. We can trust that you are in control of all things. And this is just another part of the the road of, of sanctification in our lives. Lord, life is hard. Life is burdensome. There is great pain. There's great pain in this room right now. And God, may we find true help and hope through your word alone that points us to Christ alone. May we stop looking for false assurance and false peace and pseudo comfort in this world, but may we look to the truth that gives us true peace, everlasting joy, that does not change based on the wave that hits us or the sunshine that shines upon us. May we find peace in you, knowing that one day we can be a, we are given the kingdom of heaven and one day we will inherit the earth. Oh Lord, may that be true of all of us in this room. In your name we pray, amen.